I see you shiver with anticipation. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. Make it three yards, motherfucker, and we'll have an automobile race. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, baby. I'll leave you. Now leave me alone. Private Charles Pontagon, ethnography specialist, communications platoon, headquarters company reporting, sir. Splendid. Pumper Nicole. A plum picture. Nicole, splendid. Welcome to episode 44 of the Cult Movies Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony King. This show is all about our love for author, critic, and historian Danny Perry and his Cult Movies books. What's going to happen is we're going to discuss a movie from the first book and then offer up some pairing recommendations. And back to the show, I'm happy to welcome my friend, filmmaker, and programmer, Chris O'Neill. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you, and uh, thanks for uh, having me back. I'm looking forward to this. This is, I feel like this is going to be a big show as far as, uh, you know, maybe listener interaction, just because I I feel like uh, when we start getting into the horror stuff, uh, we start really (laughs) meeting some rabid fans. So uh, I'm interested in this and and to be honest this isn't like one of my you know like all-time favorite horror films that you know i've watched uh, a million times over and over so uh, i'm really uh curious to just kind of sit back and let you uh run things here because i know you are you're a big fan and and you have you have a history with this but uh, we're going to get right into it. Chris, why don't you introduce this movie that I have been uh, beating around the bush about? Okay, so this is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, directed by Toby Hooper, and it was shot in uh, Austin, Texas. And it's a film where the plot is relatively sort of straightforward. But it's the details in the plot and the execution of what of that plot that makes it so uh, fascinating. And we're coming up to the film being almost 50 years old. Wow. And I would argue that it hasn't really diminished in its power. It's mm-hmm. still very strong. But the plot is a bunch of young guys and girls are in a, a van. Almost like a Scooby Doo kind of thing. Yeah. Think about it. Um, there's been a, if I remember correctly, there's a disturbance with one of their relatives on a, at a graveyard, and one has to kind of, one of the characters has to find out what's going on, and then they're down in this part of the world, and uh, basically they stumble across a seemingly deserted farmhouse that 
is the home of a family of former uh sorry like a, a former uh slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and what's really we'll go into this in a moment but what's really interesting about the film is it's peppered with details but very little of the details are explicitly addressed so um you you know you, through repeated viewings you, you kind of pick up some of the background and the details yeah. and such but uh basically it, it's a it's a family of uh three brothers and grandpa and uh <laughs> one of the brothers being leatherface who of course has become one of the icons of horror cinema and one by one the uh guys and girls in the van start to uh, meet an uh, ugly, horrible end until one of the girls, Sally Augustine, uh, is left. And like the final kind of section, the second half of the film really, is her going through this torment with this family as she uh, hopes and tries that she to escape. And that in a nutshell is the plot and the plot in a lot of ways sounds like a lot of other movies from that period but and we'll go into this shortly it's the execution and the details the layers of detail that really make it exceptional and why it's still highly regarded to this day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Before we go any further, let me read a little thing from Danny here. This is his opening paragraph from his essay. It's just, uh, uh, it's, he, (laughs) I, you know, obviously we love Danny Perry. I love Danny Perry. So uh, I, I, this is another, you know, so far this season, this is the fourth episode uh, we've done. I mean, his, he's, the essays that that we've gotten to, he's just knocking them out of the park. So um, Danny says, I first heard of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's well-made but excruciatingly unpleasant horror film in the fall of 1974, just prior to its national release. Nationwide news accounts stated that it had been sneak previewed at San Francisco's Empire Theater with the Walter, Walter Matthau suspense thriller, The Taking of Pelham 123, and that prior to the lights being dimmed, the audience had no knowledge of the film's violent, stomach-turning content or even its forbidding title. Uh, it only knew, like, uh, it only knew that, like Pelham, it was rated R. Soon, unsuspecting viewers were seeing a huge man in a mask made out of what was once a human face using a chainsaw to make mincemeat out of a bunch of college-age kids. Some viewers threw up, others stormed the lobby to protest what they and their children were being subjected to. Uh, When no money was refunded, punches were thrown. Two city officials in attendance that night threatened to sue the theater on behalf of themselves and other irate viewers. So began the bizarre history of the 70s most controversial cult horror film. And I would say it still lives up to that reputation. And, uh, you know, you, you talk to, I don't know if there's anybody that doesn't know the title, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, maybe not everybody has seen it, but they know the reputation 
And those who haven't seen it probably think it's it's one of the most, you know, the 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 bloodiest films ever put on screen when in fact uh it really isn't. There is blood in there, but it's not, you know, the, we've seen especially uh, you know, now that film has been around for for uh, ages and ages, we've seen so much more uh gore on film compared to this. Uh, but I love that this film's reputation precedes itself and uh, it will forever uh, be known as, like Danny says, uh, one of the most controversial cult horror films. So, uh, Chris, I want to uh, start at the beginning with you. Uh, when do you remember the first time you saw this movie? I do. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, obviously from the get-go with that title has always had a certain mystique to it or in, in you know notoriety or infamy or whatever based on the title and in britain that infamy carried over and sustained kind of for a long time because the film was refused a theatrical certificate in britain in the 70s um funnily enough as far as i know it wasn't it was cut but it wasn't banned in ireland funnily enough oh, interesting. a good friend of mine uh ed king who runs the horathon film festival in, in dublin he he recalls it opened in 1978 in dublin uh funnily enough in a cinema called the aster long gone while just to put in context uh the savoy screen one in the same city had Star Wars playing at the same time. <laughs> so um, so it, it did open in Ireland with a certificate, but in the UK, in the, the British Board of Film Censors refused the certificate to it, and instead it went to the different local authorities in the country. So uh, if you would go to the GLC in London, they granted it a certificate, you know, um, but like a local certificate just for that area, that borough, okay. whatever. sure. And, and that happened throughout the country in some places that screened it, some didn't. Uh, interestingly enough, this release was handled by Hemdale, who went on to be in the 80s a major production uh, company, hmm. independent production company with uh, Terminator and Platoon. Ah. But when they were first starting out, they were distributors and they were kind of going between doing some sort of art house films and also sort of just distributing um, kind of movies and whatnot and this was one of their uh, pickups so the film never had a, a proper theatrical release in the uk throughout the 70s or 80s and when it came out on video in britain in the early 80s it was without a, cine a video certificate because there was no such thing it only came in that videos had to be regulated from the mid 80s onwards so after that, the film was never available on video again until the late 90s. So when I was growing up, the film had this mystique to it. And, and I remember talking to one or two people who had seen it. Uh, I remember a friend of the family telling me he saw it and he was telling me how gory and violent it was. And he said, well, the, the problem with the film is that there's a guy in a wheelchair and he gets killed. And, you know, that's not right. And that's why it's banned. And, <laughs> 
you know, I remember my brother, uh, my half brother, who's older than me, um, him him telling me, you know, it was good and everything. And so it was one of these films that almost had the campfire kind of Chinese whispers tales kind of expanding <laughs> this infamous film that you couldn't see and you'd see the stills of first time I ever saw clips from it was in a documentary called I think it was called Fear in the Dark which is a quite a good documentary actually I, I found it online recently it was from the early 90s on British TV oh, cool. um, and uh, I remember seeing clips of it on that and the bit that stayed in my mem- memory it's it's most of the scene with the girl uh, being dragged back into the house by by Leatherface, and then him bringing her to the to the, the kitchen or the workroom, whatever, or you know he hangs her on the hook. So a lot of that footage was was playing on that, and for a long time it was all I saw. And eventually, uh, yeah, mid late uh, late nineties, like mid late nineties, I saw a bootleg copy. So it was badly distorted, like three or four generations down. Just to put it in context, the the incredible vivid red that you see at the beginning of the film. Well, mm-hmm. the bootleg copy I saw that just played havoc. So it was when that red was on the screen. Uh, you know, the the top third of the screen was just was just like this crazy multicolored noise. You know, <laughs> it was just flickering like crazy. And the funny thing is, when you see horror movies in this kind of incredibly grainy ugly bootlegged form some when when, when it's the, the the visceral horror movies like say zombie flesh eaters or uh, cannibal holocaust or whatever some of the more notorious films that were you know on video around this time in the uk that were never uh, also allowed in, in cinemas or if they were they were heavily cut um when you see some of those scenes they look even more disturbing so you can't quite see them you know right but the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw, I, I admired it. I, I thought it was very interesting. I, I thought it was a, a good film, but it didn't hit me the way that uh, it, it, it should have. Yeah. And I remember Kim Newman saying once in a review or something that um, he says that the reason he thinks the film was so effective to him was because he saw it in the 70s in London uh, on the big screen. And he said if he'd seen it later on video, I don't think it would have had the same effect, is mm. what he said. And that's how I saw it, but heavily degraded. And also, the suggestion of the violence, much like, say, Psycho, I mean, everybody, you know, for many years thought the, the shower scene in Psycho was very violent, but when you see it, you know, there is actually no contact. It's very, very skillfully done. It's the editing. It's the right. music. It's the quick cuts, etc. Chainsaw does exactly the same thing. Yep. Um, it's very suggestive. It, you never see any contact, and that's the beauty of the film. It's the power of suggestion and the layers of narrative and suggestion in the film that make it so rich and so effective and. So it, it took me a, a, a couple of years to really warm to it. I always thought it was a good film. I never thought it was a bad film, but it didn't really have the same impact on me as it did for other people. But, you know, in 2018, I held two uh, mini kind of retrospective uh, 
multiple you know screenings of films uh, is a tribute to Toby Hooper, and I I had one at the Dundee Film Festival in Scotland in Dundee at the DCA, and another one at the Triscoll, uh, my cinema in Cork in Ireland, and Texas Chainsaw was screened at both of them, and people were coming out completely dazed <laughs> and just squinty eyed and just. I need a drink. You know, it was that kind of like, just like, wow, what just hit me. <laughs> and, you know, I remember when we were playing it, remember it's every now and then we just pop in the auditorium just to see how it's going. And just that roaring chainsaw sound and the sound of Marilyn Burns screaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. I mean, it really does knock you sideways. Yeah. And uh, so, over the years, I've come to appreciate it and like it more. I always thought it was good, but I felt the circumstances that I saw it didn't do it justice for me, if that makes any sense. I completely agree. I First time I saw it, I was, I think I was in middle school, so I would have been, you know, 12, maybe 13 years old, and this would be early 90s. And, you know, the its reputation... Um, I, I don't know. It just didn't hit me as, like you said, exactly like you said, as it should have. And, um, because, you know, that, I mean, we were, you know, my two friends and I, you know, uh, several weekends, uh, a month we, you know, try to do an, an all nighter and we, you know, go to the video store and have our parents rent for us, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the most notorious horror films that, you know, in the Midwest here that we can think of. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's typical stuff, Friday the 13th stuff, nightmare on Elm street. We saw Texas chainsaw. Uh, and so I remember watching it and I was like, eh, uh, and then it wasn't until years and years later, uh, maybe, you know, we're talking, I don't know, 10, nine, eight years ago. Uh, I've, I found this, a DVD copy of it and oh, I left it upstairs and uh, watched it again and it was just the shittiest quality completely uh, like cropped to hell and again I was like I just don't get it man like why are people so obsessed with this but then last night <laughs> sat down and watched it with my wife who uh, I just found out she had never seen it before. So she got to watch it for the first time last night, which was really exciting. But, uh, here in the States, shutter has it. it. And it's, you know, it's, it's remastered. It looks beautiful. It's not cropped. It's, it looks great. Sounds great. And it hit me so hard. And I finally got why people are obsessed with this movie. And, uh, I was able to see its influence. It's because I, I, I'd never seen like a, a nice uh, quality screening of it. I've always seen these shitty cropped, you know, ripped VHS, whatever uh, copies of Tex Chainsaw. And so when I saw, when I saw it in its, its full glory last night for the first time, I got it. I understand it. it like I said, it's influence, how, um, 
how gorgeous it is. And 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 we'll talk about it in a second here. The like the set dressing. This is one of the most impressive, uh, most impressively dressed sets in all of cinema, I think. Um, and then, you know, the the performances I I got last night. I always kind of thought they were, you know, over the top and cheesy. And, you know, uh, I think Toby, that was his intention with uh, Chainsaw 2. He said, oh, oh, you wanted this was, you know, I intended the first one to be this really, really dark comedy. But I'm going to give you over the top comedy in number two. And so you get that in the second one. But I, I totally understood it watching uh, this nice copy of the original Chainsaw last night. And so anyways, uh, happy to report that I finally get it. It's a perfect, I think it's a perfect movie. Um, and I mean, gosh, this is, this is Toby's first. Yes. No, it's, um, <clears throat> it's his second feature. Um, and actually this is probably a, a good segue. Actually, it's his second feature. The first feature he made, was this quite extraordinary experimental film called Eggshells. Oh, yes, I haven't and, seen that. Oh, well, I say experimental, it's experimental narrative. But the way Toby would uh, summarize it was uh, it's Walt Disney's Fantasia meets Paul Morrissey's Trash. <laughs> two, two cult movies, by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's a wonderful movie i'm a, i'm a huge fan of it but it was a kind of free form heavily kind of go with the flow improvised kind of very very hippie movie um about a group of young people living in a house um in austin texas late 60s okay and so you get all these kind of wonderfully kind of ad-libbed kind of mumbly kind of exchanges and things but you have this bizarre kind of weird electric ecto sort of force creature thing living in the basement <laughs> and um they the two kind of plots combine and there's like for example this amazing sword fight where a guy is fighting himself but it's all done kind of through editing and in-camera opticals wow well, it's not optical sorry in-camera effects i mean sure obviously a guy kind of you know fighting himself and this kind of thing and it's a really extraordinary film but it uh is a niche film had it maybe come out when they started shooting it, maybe it would have had more of a, a success. But, you know, it, it, it played sort of some of the college campuses and opened in, in Austin and uh, came and went, and that was it. And it took years to complete, because it wasn't just the, the filming, but also the filming kept rolling on and things. But the... Um, editing took a long time and the fact that the film was kind of go with the flow let's see what happens you know heavily kind of just going with what was happening sure um very unfocused and it can be frustrating for some people but if you're willing to go with it i think it's absolutely wonderful that film 
did not do anything for Toby because Toby was this kind of guy that every a lot you know a lot of people heard about in the in the area because there wasn't much filmmaking going on except for guys doing like uh, you know commercials or sure industrial films and commissions for TV that kind of thing and but but just beside this besides those and even though the film wasn't necessarily very successful Toby was known as the guy who made the first feature film in Texas. So he had a bit of kind of, uh, you know, local uh, infamy. If you sure, like. yeah. That's the guy. And he wanted to create, in his words, a rocket that Hollywood could see. <laughs> he wanted to make a movie that would propel him to a Hollywood film career. And what can you do with little money, you know, low budget, uh, no name actors, limited resources, a genre movie, a horror movie. Okay. And Toby basically set out to make this all or nothing movie that was basically going to be the it was it was going to be the beginning of something or the end of it. It was like he had to do this film. <laughs> right. And the reason I'm highlighting this is it, it's very important that that is known because when you're watching it, the intensity of the film, on one hand, you have the intensity of the characters and what's going on on screen, but you also have this, it's the last chance desperation of a man yeah. who this thing has to work. Yeah. And he pushed it to the limit and beyond. You know, I mean, infamously. I keep using the word infamous on this, but I don't know. It's kind of appropriate, but yeah. Um, you know, the final day of shooting, which was the the, the final scenes with with um, Marilyn Burns in the house with the family. Um, I believe that the actor, who obviously was much younger than the age of the grandpa character didn't want to apparently sit through another kind of session of having the makeup taken off and put back on again. He said, I'm not doing it. So because of that, they had to shoot all the way through. And the final day of filming was 27 hours. Whew. And um, you're surrounding it in this absolutely ferocious, horrible boiling heat in the Texas summer. You've got real... Rotting carcasses. Carcasses, rot, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they were, you know, at one point, they, they had dog remains and things. Yeah. And they were like, well, maybe we should get, you know, they started to stink out and they went, let's get rid of them. So while they're filming, apparently they're outside burning those <laughs> to try to get rid of them. And then the smell of that's waffing around, <laughs> you know. And also, because they shot on this film stock, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what the name of it is right now, but it was a film stock that, it was, the film was shot on 16mm to be blown up to 35 and the film stock they were using was this kind of newish film stock that could quite nicely blow up from 16 to 35 without a huge, intense amount of grain. Now, the film has a nice grain structure in it um, and also the earlier kind of prints on 35 necessarily weren't, weren't the most precise, wonderful blow-ups either. They were maybe a little bit kind of done on the cheap. So sure. That enhanced it, but... Nonetheless, the reason the film looks so gorgeous now is because 
that original 16 millimeter negative uh, was, looks so gorgeous. And uh, because of the, the technology of the time, the, the, the film stock, they had to have incredibly intense lights. Yeah. And big lights and a lot of it. So imagine being in that scene where it's daytime and eventually nighttime, of course. All the windows are blacked out. They got these intense, huge lights like burning on top of them. You're just sitting there cooking. Yeah, cooking. <laughs> Carcasses all around. It's absolutely amazing <laughs> art design by by um, Bob Burns, the, the the you know guy who designed all that stuff. Yeah, and you know the actors and the crew apparently felt like they were going a bit crazy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and. Which and when Toby talked about it, he said, "Oh well, let's put it this way." Uh, after that, there was two rap parties. There was the rap party with the cast and crew, and there was me on my own on the doorstep <laughs> of the porch because uh, nobody wanted to talk to him anymore. You know? <laughs> and when and he really pushed everyone. And not to go into here because it's just so convoluted, but there's just so many stories about how messy the shoot was because sure. they kind of didn't follow a shot list. Every day they'd figure out what they were doing. They weren't sticking precisely to a schedule. It kept rolling on and on longer than it needed to. And then um, when they came to set up the distribution with, with a, a company um, that, that had mob ties and things and, you know, they were shafted on the money and, uh, you know, basically... It's incredibly convoluted, but initially nobody saw the money, any money out of it. You right. know, a lot of them were deferred payment and things. And it was only years later that they started to kind of legally start to pull it apart and start figuring it out. And the residuals started coming in. And apparently over the years, in, in recent years, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, it, it's become quite a nice you know, money spinner for everyone. But for the first 10, you know, 15 years or whatever, it was quite horrible experience and lawsuits and all these kind of things but that didn't matter because toby was determined to make this movie that was going to be this rocket that was going to launch his career in hollywood and it did yeah yeah you know and i think that's what is really important when you're watching texas chainsaw massacre that that drive was behind the camera and people were being pushed to the absolute limit and it's on the screen you know yeah and and i think that's why to this day the film still has so much notoriety and and, and so much um fascination for people and besides texas chainsaw massacre 2 which i really like i am a huge fan yeah of texas same chainsaw massacre same. Too. yeah i think it's wonderful in fact when i was younger i think i responded Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 first more so than the first one yeah enough. yeah yeah um because it's more of the 80s sensibility I mean you know if you put Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2 together they kind of seem odd but if you put Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 next to say Reanimator you go oh yeah this works right you exactly know, you know what I mean? exactly it's different sensibilities and um maybe that's why I responded more to the second one but um few of the sequels Really, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think some of the sequels and remakes and reboots, some aren't so bad. Um, some of them actually have some interesting things going on. But a lot, some of them are absolutely dire, and none of them capture what the first film did. Right. And Toby knew that 
with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He knew he couldn't replicate it, nor did he want to. So that's why he did something different. Yeah. And unfortunately, all the other films that came after Leatherface, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, the remake, etc. Some of them are, like I said, better than others, but they, they just don't have the same thing. And when you see a lot of films that are imitations of Texas Chainsaw, they take the concept. It's not really the concept. It is the concept. It's a ghoulish kind of freaky concept, but it's the way it's done that really makes that film so incredible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I I think the thing about Texas Chainsaw um well, I mean, it, some of my favorite films are uh you use the word desperation when talking about Toby. He, you know, he's he's creating this. This is going to be his Rocket Hollywood. And this is you watch you watch Texas Chainsaw and it is a man's uh, kind of final desperate attempt to launch his career. Right. And I I think that's why so many of my all time favorite films are these independent films where where people they obviously have a this drive just to go out and, and I talk about this constantly in my life they go out and just create their thing they just want to go out and make their thing whether you know writing a book making a painting whatever go out and create the thing but when you watch these movies where it's apparent like there's uh little to no resources and it's just people using their creative ingenuity to uh to make this thing so like, you know, for instance, Larry Fessenden is, uh, you know, he, he's on my Mount Rushmore of, of uh, directors uh, because like that man uh, goes out and like nobody gives this guy any fucking money and it, it's infuriating, but he still goes out and he makes these fabulous movies, these super entertaining movies uh, with little to no resources and it's just sheer blood, sweat, and tears, elbow grease, and talent. And, uh, you know, I think you watch that. So, like, you watch uh, uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead. You watch Toby's uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, I consider those two films, e even though they are, you know, what, five years apart, I think, uh, sort of the birth of modern indie filmmaking and it's just people going out and making their thing. And because of that, I think that's why, and, and uh, again, you, you talked about this earlier, I think that's why Texas Chainsaw hits so hard is because uh, you can tell these people were just busting their asses with little to no resources. And uh, it, it, it just, it, it gives you that sense of, like even the heat. You can feel how goddamn hot it is in this movie. You can smell what it smells like in that in that final dinner table scene. You can hear, you know, Sally's screams like reverberating in your chest, in your head. Uh, you are put there. And I think, I, I really honestly believe that it's because uh, these guys have nothing to work with and... And it's their heart, and you know, as cheesy as that sounds, it's their heart and it's their creative ingenuity that brings the viewer 
into uh, their stories and puts them just right there inside of it. Uh, and last night, that was the first time I felt this with this film. And I was just like, holy shit, it hit me so hard. You know, I, I it, uh, at this point in my life, I didn't find it particularly scary. My wife did. This was her first time watching it. Um, but I was more, uh, blown away, taken aback, left, you know, uh, agog by just the little details you could, I mean, every single inch of this screen was filled with, with something interesting, whether it's, you know, uh, gosh, Toby does these great, uh, his camera movement, these great lens flares, like when, Franklin and Sally are, are kind of left alone at the van. It's night. Everybody's dead at this point, but they don't know. And the camera moves across the headlights and you have these gorgeous lens flares that are, you know, uh, made fun of now, thanks to JJ uh, Abrams. But, you know, you're thinking this is 1974 and he's just out there doing this. Like this is a man, like, you know, you can see his brain going, while this story plays out. Uh, and again, like you said, <laughs> they're going in day by day. You know, they don't have, they don't have a plan. <laughs> it's Toby saying, well, uh, we're going to do this, you know, in his, his slow Southern drawl. And uh, you can just see that you can feel that. And there are so few movies that can actually do that to its audience. And most of them are very small independent films. Yeah, well, the th what's, what I think is interesting when you look at influential horror cinema of the 1970s is now there are still, there are, there are admittedly some studio films that still have you know, uh, power to kind of uh, be influential sure. and are still highly rated. And, you know, uh, The Exorcist being one, for example. But the majority of the horror films that have been so influential, that have changed the, 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 the path of where the genre went and was going and influential afterwards, etc., is the regional filmmakers yes yes before they went to hollywood if they went to hollywood so you got romero in pittsburgh and he was originally from new york and he's down in pittsburgh you have cronenberg mm. in toronto yeah who's well first couple of films were montreal, montreal but, you yeah. know nonetheless you know in canada even not even in america yeah um then you have toby and austin and you know, there's Wes Craven and Sean S. Cunningham, uh, obviously not necessarily regional, but nonetheless not a studio film and certainly not, right. you know, Hollywood. They're in New York and um, doing Last House on the Left. And um, all of these guys were and also even going to the 80s. You have uh, Sam Raimi oh, yeah. or, you know, in, in, in Michigan. Yep. It, it doing the Evil Dead, and then you have, uh, you know, uh, Stuart Gordon, who, uh, you know, Reanimator may yep. have been kind of uh, made, you know, closer to, uh, you know, Hollywood in terms of 
geographical location, but he was coming from Chicago. Chicago, yeah. And, um, you know, his sensibilities certainly were, you know, the studio system. So the horror films that still hold up to this day are from people outside of the system trying to either get into the system to be in Hollywood or stay where they are and build their own empire, you know. Uh, sadly, the only one who was ever really able to remain, you know, outside of Hollywood and, and, and kind of not uh, suffer the consequences, if you like, in terms of just different changes of the industry, technology, etc., was, was Cronenberg in, yeah. you know, in, in Toronto. But, uh, but that, it was these sensibilities that weren't from a studio system. It was these just guys just trying to do something that influenced uh the modern horror cinema yeah and and you know with these guys they obviously knew what they were doing but even some of the lesser known horror films from this period like uh you know obviously i can name dozens but the one that just sticks in my head right now say don't look in the house or uh lustig's uh william lustig's um maniac, oh, maniac yeah yeah, you know, just to name you know a couple. Again, they're they're doing their own thing. They have their influences. A lot of their influences are not necessarily just genre film, but also films of all forms. You know, mm-hmm. so like some of Toby's influences, for example, with Texas Chainsaw. One of them he he cited was um, the wonderful John Frankenheimer film Seconds. Oh, yeah. the, the the eye close ups. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh. That's where he got yeah. that idea from. Interesting. So yeah, and you can see certain aspects of Toby's experimental work done in eggshells in this wonderful short, which I one of my favorite shorts of all time, it's called Down Friday Street that he made. They were experimental uh with eggshells. It was experimental narrative, but he kind of elements from it and put them in that film in the editing in the wonderful atonal music score oh. uh, that he did with wayne bell even yeah. even you know and apparently the instruments they were working with some of them were broken this kind of thing and you know that's you know and, and also just by the way just uh what's also i mean again we can talk about all this stuff but the cinematography by daniel pearl you know, on one hand, the lighting is quite matter of fact. Mm-hmm. It is what it is in terms of what they could do with the limitations of the budget and whatever. Yet the framing and the movement, you know, it's like a stylized documentary. <laughs> yeah. You know? So um and then you have the performances and you have the intensity of the editing and you know, there's just so much, of course, the art direction. I mean, there's just every layer of it. And even the layers in the scripting, like, it's never exactly stated that they are eating people. Yeah. But you get it. And in, you know, the bit when they have that barbecue early, you know, midway through the film, they're probably eating human flesh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly stated, but that's, you know. So, like, you know, 
in a, in a late interview we did with Mick Garris, um, Toby said one of the worst things about Hollywood was one of the most frequently used words was explain. You have to explain everything. Right. Whereas he would prefer all these different layers of details and narrative to build and you make your own kind of decision, you know, come to your own conclusion. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre does that wonderfully, you know, and, um, you know, and, and, that, and that's what, so it has an earthy quality yet it's stylized and that music and the weird unnatural sound of as if it's a camera flashing at the opening, you know, that opening credits, like we hear that yeah. screeching, eh, right. you know, it, it, and those flashes of a quick glimpse of something. I mean, it, it's really quite extraordinary. It's a, it's an extraordinary film to study because um, it, it just so many details get on there. And as you mentioned already, it, it does have this bizarre sense of humor, which is pure Toby. Like, yeah. During the final scene, when poor old Marilyn Burns escapes, you know, he got uh, the older brother screaming at Leatherface, look what you've done to the door. To the door, right. (laughs) (laughs) And then even like, you know, as Toby pointed out, there's this wonderful close-up at one point where, you know, Leatherface is is just, uh, it's kind of just like, there's a close-up of him where you just sort of see him kind of touching his his, his head and he's looking really confused and he's just like, who are these people? Why do yeah. they keep coming to my house? Okay. I keep killing them. Who yes. are they? Okay, you know? so, so that's be- okay. beautiful transition. I want to talk about this for a second here. And uh, listen, uh, we could go, we could do a 10-hour show on Texas Chainsaw. Like, there's so much that we're not going to get to. But this is one thing that <laughs> my note here says uh, Leatherface isn't wrong at the beginning. These strangers... Uh, are not they're not breaking and entering but they're entering they're trespassing into his house and he's you know he's obviously uh mentally disturbed and his uh probably you know the the cook the oldest brother is probably sort of like the you know the quote caretaker of them all because the younger the hitchhiker is is a real fucking wacko but uh and so this poor person is left on his own uh, and these strangers just keep showing up in his house. And you're exactly right. Like that scene is is so it's it's almost uh, touching, but it is so funny because you know the the first kill is always shocking. Uh, so Kirk goes in and he kind of walks up the ramp towards the skulls there, and then Leatherface appears. But this is the first time I realize like Leatherface pops out of the the hallway there. And before he whacks Kurt with the with the sledgehammer, uh, he kind of has a has this this moment where uh, you know the actor Gunnar Hansen he's like, uh, uh, who, "Who the fuck are you?" Whack, yeah, you know. Yeah. So this poor guy doesn't know what what this stranger Kirk is doing in his house. He's only defending himself. And then uh, Pam comes in, and poor Leatherface is like. Are you? Who are these people? Whack! Another one? Yeah, another <laughs> one. Yeah, and he picks her up and and on the meat hook, which you know you don't see the meat hook entering her, but uh, you don't need to. It is the most like visceral, like you know I'm I saw my wife kind of shifting in her seat, like oh my god, she felt that, you know. Uh, but these people are strangers just entering, trespassing this house. So, 
Uh, and then, you know, Leatherface kind of loses it uh, uh, and ends up hunting the other two, uh, Sally and, and Franklin, brother, sister. But, uh, yeah, hello, he's not wrong. <laughs> and you see, that's like a nice, wonderful kind of detail that, you know, will obviously be lost the first time you see it. Yes. Because there's so much going on. I mean, I said this I said this once to someone about another movie and uh, he said, what fucking planet are you living on or what are you smoking <laughs> or whatever, you know, something like that. When I said um, I had seen Videodrome so many times that um, I said, by now I think it's just this wonderful black comedy. And, <laughs> uh, you know, Cronenberg actually has a lot, you know, a lot of humor. In his oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, it's very, very subtle or whatever. But of course, with Videodrome, you've got the wonderful wit of, of, of James Woods and right. that kind of smiley character stuff. But, uh, you know, Toby's films, a lot of them have wonderful, uh, bizarre humor to them. Yes. And, uh, you know, you, obviously there's Texas and then you go to Eating Alive and then you go to... Um, Funhouse, uh, the Funhouse. I mean, and the, the Funhouse. I mean, so, oh god, some of the Funhouse is just like, like, appallingly kind of uncomfortably amusing. Yeah. But it is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, and throughout the films, I mean, even like you know, going right through to obviously you get to Texas Chainsaw Two, which is a very broad, more broad kind of horror comedy. But even moments in uh, Life Force, which people didn't understand was supposed to have a certain element of. Uh, of um, tongue in you know humor to it yeah because when they when you see the, the regular american cut they try to cut out as much of the humor as possible oh, okay to make it more and, and also funnily enough that's what they tried to do with texas chainsaw massacre 2 as well you oh my god Nino. but that one you just couldn't do much with because every element of it was crazy yes you know but apparently it was even crazier um so and you know, obviously you go right through to the Mangler and and, and text, uh, Toolbox Murders remake and you know there's there's a lot of humor to those films and he actually made a comedy uh, a strange kind of mystery comedy thing but uh, the Apartment Complex which is a great TV movie so the humor in Toby's films is often this wonderful quality that is uh, that is not acknowledged and Texas has some really strange moments in it but. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, and 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 that's just another one of these layers I'm talking about, you know, of uh, of detail of narrative that that makes it so rich. Absolutely. And um, you 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 watch the movie, it, it impacts you, but it's only later on you start to figure out some of the reasons why or some of the amusing bits you didn't understand, you know, you couldn't appreciate before because right. it was so intense. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I picked up on last night. Uh, was so Franklin is you know one of the it seems like one of the most hated characters in all of horror cinema um, he is a horribly annoying character but uh, I, I will say that again like I said with Leatherface how Leatherface wasn't wrong for you know killing these trespassers uh, he maybe didn't have to kill them but anyways um Franklin, he may be immature with his, you know, constantly blowing raspberries. You know, that that is is really annoying and immature. But uh, 
you know, he's dragged along by his sister, Sally. Uh, he's the fifth wheel. Um, he can't walk. And so like, he has to depend on these other people whose only, uh, you know, goal on this little road trip is to, you know, get laid several times. And, you know, this poor guy is kind of left to his own devices. They all abandoned him. And, uh, I, I did feel kind of, kind of bad for him. And, and, and this time around, I really appreciated, um, uh, what's the name? Oh, Paul Partain. His performance. Mm. I I really uh, appreciated his performance. Him and and especially Marilyn Burns. It just hit me so hard. I was like, oh my god. Okay, uh, the acting in this is actually good. Where you know, whereas in the past, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's a it's a cheesy horror film. You know, with non actors. Well, uh, not not the case. I think everybody delivers exactly what they're supposed to what you know toby was kind of going for and i was so impressed you know with uh, um, performances alone last night well the what's interesting with, with toby is his performances in his the performances in his films because on one hand you will get maybe traditional film acting or you'll get incredibly naturalistic acting, or you'll also get very theatrical acting, and often they can be mixed in. Sure. So the the hitchhiker, obviously, his mannerisms are incredibly uh, kind of forced, and they seem strange and unnatural. But that is an eccentric character who has those traits. So that mixed in more naturalistic acting styles and you know and then you're gonna get like jim jim Cedow, i believe yep that's his name yep. he, he plays the the eldest brother like he's amazing in it i mean they all are i mean so he, great he, like leverface doesn't say anything i mean gonna henson just in his, his physicality yeah. you know and then jim Cedow, and then uh you know and marilyn burns is amazing in him one of the, the great final girls as they say you know yeah and um i mean i i think she's um i know toby's follow-up film eaten alive or, or death trap as it was known here in you know uk ireland mm. originally like some some great moments in that with her as well you know that movie uh so you know again another one of those kind of cases of an actor who had they not been in kind of genre films, would they have had a, a different career? Sure. Yeah. Um, afterwards, but yeah, no characterizations. Um, everything's very kind of precise. There's a, there's a wonderful kind of precise yet free form feeling to the film as in it, there's an urgency. There's a very precise ultimate goal but yet there's a certain playfulness yeah. to certain things like the characters and the uh, the acting, yeah. you know? Um, so all of those things make that. That's what really makes the film, I think. Because, uh, you know, you can talk about aesthetics all you want, but besides the story, you really not only need great characterization, but the actors to actually embody them. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and everybody, I think everybody does a great job in that movie. 
I agree. Even 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 the guy at the end who just yeah, you kind of remember him. The poor guy's in the truck. And <laughs> and yeah, they leave like <laughs> that poor guy has to leave. Like he abandons his truck, and like uh, Sally jumps in the in the bed of the this oncoming pickup. But like this other guy is just he's left Running. his own devices. And you're like, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> yeah, you you, know, you can feel the terror in that dude. Yeah, it's a good performance. Yeah. You didn't even have to say a damn thing. Yeah. So um, so yeah, and and, and and I think this is why for the, you and me, you know, it, the initial viewing didn't necessarily knock us away, blow us away, but subsequent view, viewings did, and. I actually think this is key to Toby Hooper in general in his filmography. Most of his films can, one way or the other, whether it's appreciated or not appreciated or whatever, can be watched the first time and can be enjoyed, be ridiculed, whatever it is. But subsequent uh, subsequent viewings, you realize there's more than meets the eye yes oh my gosh yeah and it, it's very rewarding well, you know well what... now, unfortunately there was a few times in his career where films were taken out of his hands and yeah you're left with a re-edit of something that you know you have to have that knowledge but the ones that he had some sort of control over you know he he, he knew exactly what he was doing and the extra the, the repeated viewings enrich the experience i think yeah i agree uh how was it Oh, his his episode of Masters of Horror, the, the well, at least the first one. I haven't seen his second one, but Dance of the Dead, again. Yes. Like, I mean, the guy was so damn talented, and like, I don't know, man. Nobody, you know, uh, my friend Patrick Bromley from at this movie is is the biggest Toby Hooper fan you'll ever meet, and you know, he is he is constantly talking about how you know nobody ever threw Toby a bone like he had to uh, scrounge for for you know for what he wanted for his vision constantly and and thank god his friend Mick Garris you know created master of, masters of horror and allowed Toby to do his his thing which is great um but i you know i love in in chainsaw that uh you talked about the the kind of experiment uh, the experimental qualities and you mix that again, like you said, with the the precision of the performances, and you can see like Toby had a clear vision, right, for this film, as he I assume as he did for every single one of his projects. Um, you know whether he was able to communicate that uh, perfectly, who knows? We weren't there. Um, is anyone able to actually? <laughs> communicate our ideas perfectly no of course not but i i love this mix that toby was able to achieve between uh the precision of one the performances the set uh dressings you know but then you have like this experimentation uh, this experimental stuff like with the music with him and wayne bell you talked about real quick how it it's just it, it's noise and so you could tell again like these are two creative geniuses um going out and like they're making things that make sense to them and then when it when it gets married with you know its final kind of destination it makes sense to us the viewer and i, I you know it it takes a special person to do that but this is like just uh experimental noise music and uh, i you, 
it, it's the only type of score that would work for this type of movie. But then you have the camera movements and the editing, like like the final dinner scene where it's just a barrage of, uh, you know, cuts, smash cuts and stuff. Uh, Marilyn Burns screaming constantly through. I mean, it's like a three minute scream and these smash cuts of, you know, so close on her beautiful green eyes. And it's this this kind of frantic, uh, scary moment. Uh, but it it's uh, you don't see that very often. Uh, so for me, like that's that's such an experimental thing. And it works so well in here. And and I think this um, chainsaw, it's this perfect marriage of of experimental ideas and like this precise vision. And you marry those two things together and you get this one uh, unique singular thing that comes out in 1974 that that can never, ever be replicated, you know, as as it you know, is so often tries to be replicated with all the remakes and the, the sequels like you were talking about and, you know, ripoffs and, and homages and all that. Uh, but this is a one singular vision that can never, ever be done again. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And like that, like, like what's interesting is every time, the, the reason Toby had a career for so long as he did afterwards was because he was the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Yet he never repeated what he did with that film precisely. Sure, he used elements. I mean, for example, I think um, the Toolbox Murders yeah. in particular has that kind of frenzied quality to it as it sure. goes along. But, and, and, and this is the reason why like like for example I, the last couple of years I, I was researching to um i have been i should say uh but in my own time like a major almost like a hobby rather than as a, a full-on kind of you know uh project right is to is to do a book about about toby's uh work and, and the man himself and one of the reasons that the core reason i wanted to do it was when i decided two or three years ago to do this was there was no other there, there was a book out and it's not a bad book i'm not a huge uh, admirer of of its uh, you know of its um of its author's uh writing and viewpoint i mean it's not to slight him it's just it doesn't really it felt very dry to me it didn't really sure. feel like it had an inside track into toby as a, as a filmmaker it felt more like quite a kind of a dry study of the films even though some of them you know the observations and some of the the um, you know uh research is interesting but in the last year you know scout uh scout tay fire the foa uh, i'm probably pronouncing that name wrong i'm so sorry scout if you're listening to this <laughs> um came out with a book and there's another book by uh, Christopher uh, Wufter and Will Dodson. And those two books are kind of doing what I initially wanted to do, which was simply to have a book out there that looked at Toby's work um, from a certain you know aspect. And I still would like to write my book, and maybe I will, 
but the the whole reason was was I think he was an incredibly underappreciated filmmaker because mm-hmm. of all those guys from the seventies I mentioned already, like uh, Wes Craven, Cronenberg, uh, Romero, you know, all those guys. Toby was the one at the time that I just didn't click with because the films take kind of multiple viewings to watch and every film he did he experimented not necessarily made experimental films but he experimented with form with storytelling with you know different aspects of filmmaking so you know take someone like john carpenter or or romero you know uh or anyone obviously any of these guys but particularly like say those two in particular there there's a very strong uh vision there that you can see in different films right whereas toby's vision is there but it's much more subtle and it's more blended into the work rather than being more obvious and i actually think he was one of the most talented filmmakers and uh, i don't mean to put the other filmmakers down they're all wonderful but i just mean in filmmaking in general yeah yeah some of the interesting ideas and skill and ability he had like wow what could have happened if he had done a non-genre film i'm not saying anything about you know nothing wrong with horror film or anything but the horror film but what could he have done with another genre or another yeah. kind of film yeah because his documentary work i mean he did a documentary about uh peter paul and mary Oh really? Uh, it's an hour-long documentary for TV. Yeah, it was, it was made for TV, and it and it's a really nice little documentary. It's really quite interesting. And that short I told you about already, uh, I mentioned already, yeah. uh, down Friday Street. It's a it's an experimental documentary because it's it's about a, a kind of neighborhood in Austin that was being demolished, and it's very much kind of focused on this one particular bit on this one particular house, and it's really, you know, interesting stuff. So he was taking these elements of documentary. Uh, where you're obviously at the mercy of how things unfold rather than having a very clear point. Right. And um, he applied that to to Texas and a lot of his later films, you know, and uh, such a fascinating guy. But, um, yeah, so it, it, it's... I must admit, when we were first talking about doing this episode, I was a little bit anxious about doing it because I was like, you can't really fault the film. Do you know what I mean? It's no, kind of no, impenetrable. No. Yeah. You can't, I mean, I know you said, you did, but I'm sure you could acknowledge that there was something going on. It just wasn't agreeing with you. That's how I felt. And, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, and it's like Danny's piece that you read there. What's he called it? Toby Hooper's well-made, but, but excruciatingly excruci- unpleasant <laughs> horror film. Um, so it's like an acknowledgement that this is really well done, but it's horrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, British, I, I believe it was uh, James Furman, the uh, the head of the uh, British Board of Film Censors, who had a history with this film since the seventies, called the film the pornography of horror or pornography of terror, <laughs> and they, they 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 said the problem with the movie, these the censors uh, in the UK at the time, that the problem with the movie was you can't cut it. You know, if you cut it, it doesn't make a difference. Right. Because rather than having a close-up of a bloody something or another, or a blade going in here, or a wound, or a head coming, or, you know, etc. It's just this foreboding 
omnipresent, unpleasant sense of terror. Yeah. And apparently they, I think they cut something like 25 seconds out of it. And they, they looked at it and just went, it doesn't make any difference. And funnily enough, Herman joined the BBFC, I think in 75. And his predecessor, Stephen Murphy, um, also rejected the film. It was rejected twice during the, the 70s. And he said the same thing. He said, I don't think any cutting would do anything. And sure enough, when Herman looked at it and they attempted to cut it, he said, it doesn't do anything. It's <laughs> impenetrable from editing because it's just so well-crafted. You know, I don't think you, can, you can't really get to it. And that's why, after all these years, the film still holds up. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well... Like I said, we could we could do a ten hour show on this movie alone, uh, but I'm glad we got to talk a lot about uh, Toby here. Uh, but it is time we're gonna move on to our pairing recommendations, and I did something. I kind of approached this differently, um, where I envisioned a four movie marathon that ends with. Texas Chainsaw. I, I think a, a, a marathon ending with Chainsaw is great because of, you know, it it takes place over, you know, something like 16 hours or 18 hours or something like that where, you know, it ends just as the sun is coming up. And so, you know, uh, I think that's a great, <laughs> a great way to uh, end a marathon. Anyways, that's kind of how I approach this. Um, but, uh, uh, Chris, I just, let's get right into it. Can I hear your first pairing recommendation with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Sure. So the the first one, so so the films I've, I've selected, all three of them are like backwater uh, terror films. Okay. Usually with outsiders arriving in a rural place where they are terrorized by the locals. And usually, not always, but usually they have no... Uh, they have not done anything wrong other than just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The first one I selected is, I think, and it's a Marmite film, in, in, by which I mean it's a film that Toby Hooper fans either love or hate. And don't worry, the other films aren't Toby films, just this particular one I, I really think is an interesting film to put aside with, with to play with, with Texas Chainsaw. Is eaten alive. Oh yeah, the follow-up he did in nineteen seventy-six. So, the reason I'm picking that is what's so fascinating about Eaten Alive is it takes certain qualities of Texas Chainsaw, but applies them very differently. So you have the kind of atonal music score once again by Toby and Wayne Bell, but it's electronic. Uh, you have Marilyn Burns once again in the lead, and it's also about like a deranged, withdrawn, secluded psychopath. Uh, you know, inflicting his violence and craziness on visitors who are you know not guilty of anything other than just wrong place, wrong time. Being right, there, right, yeah, right, wrong place at the wrong time, and but. What's really fascinating about it is is uh, it was all shot on a soundstage. Oh, was it really? And yeah, so I the never whole w- film in yeah the entire oh film was set bound. They uh, and there's this amazing kind of stylized lighting. Like I said with Texas Chainsaw, 
the cinematography, the lighting was kind of matter of fact, almost documentary style, whereas the camera movements and the framing were more stylized. In this film, the lighting is incredibly controlled and stylized. Yeah. Like those bizarre reds and yeah. the swamp and everything. And, you know, I, you could argue it doesn't reach quite the same level of, of, uh, of craziness, but I think it actually does and goes beyond. But it's just that it's such a stranger film that, it, that people don't quite understand what the hell they're looking at. <laughs> uh, you know, the case in point, one of my favorite scenes in it is when uh, Marilyn Burns... Uh, her husband in it, played by the wonderful William Finlay, who of course is the Phantom of the Paradise and appeared in many of the Palmer's films, and their little daughter and the little dog arrive at to stay in this in this decrepit kind of looking motel, and within a couple of minutes, the dog gets eaten by the hotel owner's crocodile. Um, <laughs> you know, the little girl's like scarred for life in her. You know, the tr- the mother's trying to settle her down, and then. The husband comes in and just has like in this bizarre meltdown with his wife. And he's like, you just want to take that cigarette and put it out in my eye. <laughs> and then, you know, and then he goes off to try to kill the, 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 the crocodile to, to prove his manliness. And as you hear the gunshot outside, you have this wonderful moment where it burns puffing on the cigarette. And the little girl says like, what's going on? Where's daddy? And she goes, Daddy's gone to slay the dragon. (laughs) (laughs) And again, a film I could go on about, et cetera, et cetera, but it's just seeing some of the same aesthetics from Texas, but twisted and morphed into something quite crazy and peculiar. Yeah. Um, And I, I, I really like that film a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a, it's early. um, Oh shit. What's his name? Robert England. Robert England. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's great. It is, yeah. I haven't watched that for a few years. I need to go back. That's uh that was a fun movie. Yeah, I really like that one. Okay, so I think you and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we have uh at least one crossover here because I have sort of the same idea. I I, I pictured a southern fried four movie marathon here. So uh, the first one here is one of my all-time favorites from 1974, same year as Chainsaw. This is Macon County Line, uh, mm. co-written and directed by Richard Compton, and it stars the Vint brothers, Alan and Jesse, uh, Cheryl Waters, and Max Bayer Jr. Jeffrey Lewis is in there for a little bit, playing, uh, I, you know, whatever the hell he's doing, my God. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, one of the great character actors. But uh, for anyone who hasn't seen Macon County Line, it is it's an intense sort of uh, lesson to be learned when traveling through, you know, small towns, whether you're in the Midwest or the South. But uh, you have the Vint brothers there. They are playing two brothers on their last hurrah before uh, deploying overseas uh, in the military. And they pick up a hitchhiker, played by Cheryl Waters, and the three of them get stranded in this small southern town that is kind of uh, ruled by this, you know, uh, quote-unquote old-fashioned sheriff. You know, he's racist. He doesn't like outsiders, right? And so so then you have, like, these two other 
criminals, actual criminals, they go through town, and while the sheriff is away picking up his son at military school, the uh, real criminals stop, they rape the sheriff's wife, and they kill her. And so then the sheriff shows back up after picking up his son and suspects that it's these other people who did that, the Vint brothers. And so he starts hunting them and it becomes very intense. And uh, it is, um, I don't know what it is about this movie, but I find it insanely rewatchable. Uh, yes, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I, I, uh, I do have memories of it being a lot of fun. And again, a great, one of those kind of, uh, those films that are set in the South in the seventies, they, they have a gritty texture to them. Yeah, they sure do. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great, just, uh, just the vibe, not just the the locale, the setting, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a while. Uh, when I should revisit, but, um, yeah, I uh, I have fond memories of seeing that a couple of years ago, and uh, it's a nice, nice, nice choice I think to to pair it up with Texas. Yeah. Um, okay, let's hear your next one. Okay, so what I chose for my next film is another rural film, uh, but a different locale, and I went with Straw Dogs from nineteen seventy one. Oh, yeah. The the reason I I've always had a very strong uh, connection with this film for two reasons. One being that, um, so I'm Brit-Irish. My, my, my father's British, my mother's Irish. And for the first 10 years of my life, I lived in Cornwall where Straw Dogs is set. And I actually oh, wow. grew up about 30 odd miles from St. Berrien's, where is the external locations for Straw Dogs. The oh my town gosh. at the beginning, the, the yeah. village, church, that, that business. So, you know, like, for example, my grandmother, who sadly died a few years ago, but in the 60s, she was a, an usher in a cinema. And the last film she probably ever saw in a cinema was a 60s reissue or maybe the original, I don't know, of a release of uh, Lawrence of Arabia. That was the last time she was in a cinema. Oh, wow. Doesn't know anything about film, didn't know anything about films, but she knew about Straw Dogs being Dustin Hoffman because it was like this local film, you know? Yeah. It was like the big Hollywood film that was shot there. So there's that. But also, uh, when, I, when I left there, I came to Ireland. I came to a very kind of rural Ireland, and... I felt a lot like David Sumner in mm. Straw Dogs because <laughs> what's really effective about Straw Dogs and what's interesting about it is unlike, say, um, Texas Chainsaw, where you got these very clearly defined psycho nutters living in the, you know, living in their own world, there's just this weird tension between the locals and this guy. And it's just the the layering of this tension that when it explodes, it's about something that doesn't even involve him. Right. You know? Right. And yet he somehow feels that it's his place to do something about it. And, you know, without giving anything away and even when everything's kind of done and dusted at the end, 
there's no sense of wonderful kind of heroic hurrah. No. It's it's really quite depressing and bleak and a typical seventies film. So <laughs> uh but the reason I just picked that was because of the you know, it's again about an outsider being in this place and uh kind of rubbing up the the locals the wrong way. Because even though the locals in the film, these particular group of men are the antagonists and they're you know, obviously most of them are quite horrible. You know, that all the way through the film there are a lot of times where Dustin Hoffman could avoid what happens. Right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to build where it goes to. And ultimately you could sort of see him as the villain of the piece. Yeah. And yet, and this is what I think is so wonderful about it, I think most of us would do something like what he does, which is his way of trying to skirt around conflict. And ultimately, if he was more of a man and just stood up, he could have maybe put them in their place before it got as bad as it did. Sure. And yet he does what most of us would probably do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. And builds to this really kind of violent ending. So uh, that was my second choice because, um, again, it's just this fish out of water kind of situation. Sure. Uh, with these two different kind of uh, backgrounds of characters, you know, characters from different backgrounds kind of just um, clashing off each other. Um, but obviously not quite as clearly defined as, as uh, Leatherface and his, you know, his kin <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in right. Texas, uh, Chainsaw. But uh, nonetheless, I just think, you know, the 70s had that wonderful period of where the films and whatever could be, it made you afraid of everything. You know, it was the era of the disaster movie. You take a boat cruise, you could be killed. Earthquake could be killed, you know, Towering right. Inferno. You go to the sticks, you know, deliverance, you know, could be murdered and raped and, you know, just everything's just, you know, how many films was it about like dogs and frogs and you know, <laughs> nature turning back on you and all right. these things. So, uh, yeah, that was my second choice anyway, Straw Dogs. What I find interesting is that this is Peckinpah, who is almost like a quintessential American filmmaker, right? Going overseas and making uh, what almost feels like a quintessential American film in a very specific uh, UK locale. Uh, and I, that's what I, it, it has such uh, uh, this unique feeling about it because of that. Like it's, it feels, I mean, just as red blood as like any of his movies. Uh, but then it's set in this, you know, uh, very picturesque um, locale, like you know, in you know, in England, and it's just, I, I just, I think that's, you know, one of the most unique things about this movie, one of the most memorable things for me, at least, about Straw Dogs. Yeah, and also, sorry, let's move on, obviously, to the other films. But something, else, something my father pointed out to me, he said, anytime you see uh, a film that was filmed and set in Cornwall, which is a lovely, beautiful place. It's where Land's End is and beautiful scenery. He said every film or TV program you see it is always, there's all, it's always gives the impression that the, that wherever like the characters are based or whatever, it's near the sea, it's near the water. Right. Because that's obviously the most picturesque area. Straw Dogs is one, is the only film I can think of that's been shot in Cornwall. 
where that is not the case. Oh yeah, you know, it it's really quite secluded and not next to any of that kind of picturesque yeah. scenery. Yeah, you know, true. So uh, so yeah. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's good. Yeah, that I love that movie, man. Um, okay, so my second one. I know you're a fan of this movie. At least I think I know you're a fan of this movie. Uh, it is uh, Charles B. Pierce's The Evictors from 1979, starring Michael Parks, Jessica Harper, Vic Morrow. Is in there? You, you're a fan of this movie, right, Chris? I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, I recently uh, revisited a lot of Charles B. Pierce films, and um, I think The Evictors, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and The Legend of Boggy Creek oh another another filmmaker coming from rural yep you know his regional his region of america that's not hollywood and doing his own thing and coming up with this really wonderful unique flavor and um i think the evictors is really good i like that one jessica harper michael parks and nick morrow i mean great cast so good and you know you get this like nice little twist at the end um but yeah i mean those two alone are just so uh charismatic they're so and so beautiful to look at michael parks and jessica harper that is uh but Mm. for anyone who hasn't seen it it's uh they play these two newlyweds they move into this old house uh that has a peculiar history that uh is sort of unknown to them but of course the townspeople know about it uh and you know meanwhile there's there's this mysterious man he's kind of stalking the property while the rest of the small town uh, like i said they kind of look at these newlyweds um in a suspicious light you don't really know what's going on until the end um yeah and it's it's really really um it's thrilling it's and it's you know mysterious and i love uh, i'm with you i love charles b pierce man like i i almost went with uh town that dreaded sundown because uh, that, that's a fun you know southern fried movie but I I feel like the Evictors is a little less known, so I wanted to talk about that one more. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, no, absolutely, and the use of scope uh, images. Yeah, and um, no, it's a nice choice. Yeah, I like I like that film, and it's funny when you say twist there, and I'm not going to say anything about it. But uh, anyone who would be interested in watching the film after listening to this, do not see the trailer because the trailer absolutely gives away everything. Oh, you're shitting me. Film everything like i was watching it recently going you're kidding me right like oh. it's just giving away the whole twist but don't get me wrong i know <laughs> trailers have to right but they honestly don't give a shit about spoiling the plot <laughs> as long as someone <laughs> buys a ticket and goes in right you know <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um okay so that's the evictors chris let's hear your third one here so for my third one uh i went with uh, Walter Hill's 1981 film uh, Southern Comfort. Oh yeah, which uh, was a favorite film of mine when I was uh, when I was uh, I remember around 11, 12 years old. Uh, I was a huge fan of Walter Hill, and this film in particular, I just thought was incredibly just oh, just really taken with it, and it's. What what's great about the best Walter Hill films from this you know from from the the, the classic period from seventy five to say eighty four is uh, obviously there were occasions where he did work with like genuine stars uh, Charles Bronson Ryan O'Neill Stern you know but I think 
the best of his films are the ones where he was left with an ensemble of strong actors who were either like young and up and coming and or just really good character actors totally you know? yeah and with southern comfort you have powers booth keith carradine who mm. you know again would have you know would have been relatively well known of course but again he was never a star he was always like a really solid good actor in different movies totally and uh, you have fred ward um (laughs) and yeah who's horrible and what great in it and of course um unfortunately he's not in it for very long but peter coyote as well you know yeah Uh, and 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 brian james and uh obviously like a national uh sorry um these national guards versus you know these cajuns and the swamps is a parallel <laughs> you know is an allegory i should say sorry of uh america's uh involvement in the vietnam war um but it's really well done i mean beautiful cinematography and andrew laszlo uh mm. Roy Cooter score oh. uh just the interaction with the actors and hill just does this wonderful pared down talk you know storytelling and uh it's a really good movie and it's one of those movies that you know you you have your you have stock characters in these kind of tense situations you know yet the dialogue and the actors are so um you know so commanding on the screen that doesn't matter you know they do something with it that makes each of the characters breathe a little bit of uh, uniqueness or credibility into them so they aren't just stock characters right you know, on paper they would be or you know so so yeah uh that yeah that was my third choice i'm a big fan of that film and uh uh yeah that's that was the so and, and, and sorry just to, to no wrap you're up fine on this on this point on this point a lot of these films like straw dogs like texas chainsaw like Southern Comfort, are very much angry about the situation of things in America at the time, you know? Right. Like, there's a certain... I mean, obviously, with Straw Dogs and Southern Comfort, you can you can maybe, you know, subtle or not so subtle, read into, like, America's involvement abroad, you know? Or with, kind of, Texas Chainsaw, you know, this was the time when there was, like, the gas shortage and... Right. Uh, you know, the end of the hippie era, and you're there is the Vietnam War going on, and you know post uh, My Lai and and uh, um, Kent State, and um, you know subtle or unsubtle, they all feed into what was happening at the time in the country. Absolutely, and and they have a certain kind of kind of uh, pessimism to them. And uh, yeah, I think all three of them are layered and have something interesting to say and are also strong entertainment, you know? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think that's, you know, why so many of us, you and me included, you know, uh, Hertzberg, uh, you know, gosh, Jim Healy, Ben Reiser, all of us. This is why we're obsessed with the films from the 70s, because they have so much to say. Uh, uh and they're entertaining. 
<laughs> you know, that's you, yeah. We don't we don't get a lot of that, you know, in the you know, or any of that really in the big budgets of today, uh, which I will not go into. Uh, I'm I'm gonna slide right into my third choice here, and so uh, I was gonna go Herschel Gordon Lewis, 2000 Maniacs, which I watched for the first time for this. Um, but it you you know I'm again I appreciate. Herschel Gordon Lewis's, uh, you know, go get him attitude. Just go out and make your thing. But uh, I just, man, it's hard for me to get into his movies. They're just not very good, in my opinion. So, <laughs> so uh, instead, I went with David Worth's Poor Pretty Eddie from 1975, written by B.W. Sandifer. And this stars Leslie Uggams. Shelley Winters, Ted Cassidy, Lurch himself, uh, Michael Christian as the titular Eddie, and Leslie Uggams. So she plays this sort of like popular singer, of course, uh, an African-American lady, and she's traveling through the South. She gets stranded in some backwoods, you know, redneck town uh, where Ted Cassidy is going to, he's the mechanic, he's going to work on her car. And Ted Cassidy... You know what the relationship is with with these people you don't know but he lives with michael christian who is playing a an elvis impersonator uh, and he sings and does his impersonations here and he's so so great in this uh but then <laughs> shelly winters is sort of like the mama bear i mean you know she's playing her shelly winters characters of the 70s that she always did uh, which I love. I gosh, I man, I love Shelley Winters so much. Uh, but so th- all three of these people live together. Leslie Uggam stranded. Uh, she has to stay overnight, uh, and is basically kidnapped then by these three, and she's forced into. Uh, she's gonna be forced into marrying Eddie, played by Michael Christian, and uh, you know you meet more of the small town backwoods you know, inbred people. Uh, who plays the sheriff? Um, it's Slim Pickens, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Slim Pickens. Oh, yeah. my God. So, I mean, it's a super entertaining movie. Again, you know, uh, lots to say, but in this kind of, you know, silly, backwoods, uh, thrillery type of way. Uh, and it's incredibly entertaining. I love this movie. And I've never seen it. I've only I've read about it. And uh, I think maybe in Shock Express, uh, the the book yeah of the Bill Landis Michelle Clifford, I think it's uh given a kind of a detailed plot synopsis in that. I think it was that book, and I've seen the trailer, but I haven't seen the film, so uh, I must rectify that. I really want to see it. Yeah, oh, it's really, really, really good. Love this movie. All right, Chris, my friend, I always love talking to you. Um, where can people find you online? Do you have any projects you can talk about that are coming up here? Right, so um, I have a few projects. Unfortunately, I can't really mention them at the moment. That's cool. They're all projects that haven't been announced. Uh, the one project that has been announced but not released yet, I can mention, is coming out January 2022. And that is, uh, I did a video essay uh, co-authored with Amanda Reyes um, for the Toolbox Murders, the oh. 1978 
yeah not toby's version so um i say co-authored i mean it it's amanda's narration and script right um it's it's her baby you know she I mean she and she did an amazing job and i simply kind of create you know cut, I, cut around it yeah i gave yeah I, I i gave it some sort of uh life if, as a video essay but um driven very much by her um narration and script and uh delighted to be invited to to work on that one so who's put who's putting the, that out oh blue underground oh okay it is okay cool yeah, so it, it it's a reissue, so yeah. it's a new kind of 4K or UHD. Yeah, yeah. One of those, one of those jobs. Nice. And I've got uh, a couple of gigs coming up with Sun City Editions, uh, Imprint Pictures, the Australian company, mm-hmm. and uh, there's one or two other ones I, I can't really mention sure. yet because even the – yeah, I'm still finalizing some details. Sure. So I've got those coming up next year. Um maybe i'll have some sort of you know do something with the 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 toby book i don't know if not a book maybe you know i'll go a video essay route or something yeah maybe long form or something i'll see um but we'll see but in terms of yeah my uh my work i mean usually chris o'neill 99 or 2020 or something is is the is that the handle i have on social media so i'm on twitter facebook and uh instagram and uh i have a vimeo uh, page as well where i have various um short films and trailers and uh i will say if anybody's interested in seeing any of my video essays uh there's one i have that's online that was published by the british film institute of an irish film from 1981 called mave so I was uh, commissioned to do one for the Blu-ray release, yeah. and this is a sort of abbreviated version of it. Oh, cool! Which, uh, it can be viewed online, but uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. All I can say right now, I'm afraid. Very good. Uh, you, you guys can find uh, all those links where you can find Chris and and uh, uh, support uh, him at the links in the description on this episode you can find this show on twitter and instagram at cult movies pod you can follow me at ak donnelly on twitter instagram and letterbox that's a-k-d-o-n-e-l-l-y next week jeremy ritchie is coming back we're going to talk about james dean and rebel without a cause uh chris o'neill thanks again my friend always love having you here thank you for having me back